Our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning is in Genesis chapter 49. We'll read verses 1 through 12 this morning. This begins the portion where Jacob on his deathbed speaks prophetically of his sons and of the tribes that will be descended from them and gives his blessing to them in various ways. But we read now the word of God, Genesis 49, verses 1 through 12, as he gave Moses to write infallibly by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the word of the living God, Genesis 49, verses 1 through 12. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch." Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council, nor let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah... You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading, its exposition, and its hearing. As I said, as Jacob was on his deathbed, he blessed Joseph's sons. We saw this last week. He blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, adopting them as his own. And following that, he called his twelve sons into his presence to pronounce God's word concerning them and their descendants. He has much more to say about Judah and Joseph than about the other ten brothers and their descendants. So I've broken this passage into two parts that we'll handle uh, this week and next week, Lord willing. Today I'll deal with Jacob's prophecy concerning Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And I want to offer some explanation of each prophetic statement, but we'll concentrate on the statement, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, and the rest of verse 10. For this is, in fact a foretelling of the coming of Christ. So our main point will be trust Jesus Christ who fulfills 
God's promises. Along with that, we'll see a lot of general support for the great theme of Genesis. Of course, the greatest theme of Genesis is the sovereignty of God, but but because God is also good, we see proceeding from that this other theme of Genesis, which is the Lord's faithfulness. For we will see some ways in which this word from God pronounced by his prophet Jacob came to pass. The simplest way to do that is just to take these pronouncements in the order Moses presents them to us. Moses tells us, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. And Now that term, last days, is an expression found frequently in the Old Testament. It's Baharith uh, Hayamim. It can simply mean in the days to come. Uh, but it often has a connotation of last days or just generally the distant future. So he isn't telling his sons necessarily everything that's going to happen. Most of the things, in fact, that he talks about here are things that we're still waiting for to happen. They're things that have actually happened in the past to us, but they were quite a distant in the future for Jacob and his sons. So these things that he says do indeed concern Uh, his sons and the tribes that will be descended from these 12 men. Now, most of these things are facts of history that we can read about in the historical books of the Old Testament. Uh, Things which occurred within a few centuries up to about a thousand years or so from Jacob's time. But the highlight is really verse 10. And we'll see that concerns the coming of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And it concerns the consummation of his kingdom, the full extent of which we uh, still have to see. It hasn't come. It's already, but not yet in that sense. So Jacob says, Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. This first prophetic foretelling concerns his eldest son, Reuben. Indeed, the first four sons he addresses are the sons of Leah, in birth order. They're his first four children. Uh, Next time, uh, Lord willing, we'll see that he speaks about Zebulun and Issachar, the other two sons of Leah, but not in birth order. He actually flips them around. Uh, Then he addresses the sons of his secondary wives, uh, Dan, the son of Bilhah, then Gad and Asher, the sons of Zilpah, and then Naphtali, the other son of Bilhah. And he'll finish with Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel. Today, as I said, we cover the four eldest sons of Jacob and Leah. So Jacob's four eldest sons. And of Reuben, Jacob says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Reuben is Jacob's firstborn son in birth order. The expression of him being Jacob's might and the beginning of his strength, or expressions that are often said about firstborn sons in ancient contexts, a sign of the virility of his father, the beginning of all of his descendants, of all of his posterity, and so he's the beginning of my strength. And he says that he has excellence in dignity and power, or should. He should be first in dignity and power as a firstborn son, but... Then verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. 
So Reuben will not excel. He will not go ahead of his brothers. That's really what excelling means. Uh, When I was a teenager, the the use of the word excellent uh, became uh, kind of like the word awesome. Uh, Sort of got so overused that we forgot what it really meant. Uh, Anything that's somewhat good, people would say, excellent. You know, those are excellent French fries. But to excel really means to go ahead, to be the first, to be the the winner of a foot race. excelled the other runners. He got ahead. And here Jacob is saying, Reuben should be in the first position among my sons, but he's not excelling. And he won't. He's not going to go in front of them. He'll not go ahead of his brothers. He'll, He'll not be preeminent. And so in other words, he's going to lose, though he in birth order is the firstborn, he's going to lose that status. Though ordinarily the firstborn son is preeminent in dignity and authority over his brothers in his father's household, Reuben has forfeited that position. Jacob says he's unstable, or that could even be read boiling like water. He's not dependable. Another way of reading that to say unstable is water is just to to think of uh, how easy is it to walk on water. Our Lord accomplished this by his sovereign power, but you and I can't do that. How stable is water? Not. He's not dependable. So though born first, he will not receive the legal status as firstborn. In Genesis 35-22, we read, And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. So Bilhah, one of the secondary wives, that's really what concubine means, a wife that doesn't quite have the full status of other wives. For this reason, which reveals that Reuben is untrustworthy, Jacob does not bestow on him the ordinary blessings of the firstborn. So firstborn in the Bible is used in two different sense. One is the literal firstbornness of someone. Someone uh, is given birth to first. And also it can mean preeminent over his brothers. So, for example, when uh, Paul tells us in Colossians that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, that's not saying that he was the first created being. It's saying that uh, as a man in his, uh, of course, in his uh, divine nature as God, he's always been preeminent over all things. But in his human nature, he's been given this firstborn status over all things. He's preeminent. And Paul goes on to say even the fact, the fact that he was raised from the dead to eternal life, first among all, makes, makes him preeminent in all things. But here, Reuben doesn't get that. He still is technically the firstborn because he was born first, but other than that, he does not get that firstborn status. He doesn't get preeminence over his brothers. Jacob is so distressed to recount what his son Reuben has done that it seems he he stops talking about him uh, in the first person there, or in the second person rather, because you uh, went up, and he And he speaks of him in the third person as if he's saying to his other sons, this is what he did. He went up to my couch. That was a, not only a moral 
problem in itself in the terms of the violation of marriage, but it also shows a sense of disrespect for his father even beyond the violation of the marriage covenant there. Because uh, in the ancient world, when uh, someone influential, a king or a lord of some kind, uh, might have concubines. Now, we've already talked about the fact that this was not lawful, really, under God's law. This was not the way that Jacob should have acted to have secondary wives and that sort of thing. Uh, But when kings often had these concubines, these secondary wives, and for another man to come and take those concubines was like him saying, I am taking the place of the king. I'm now in charge. And so when Reuben did that, it may well have been that he was trying to say, I'm in charge of the family now. Dad's old. I'm going to take his place. So Jacob is distressed at this. As we saw last week, the double portion of the firstborn actually will go to Joseph. The leadership of the family, we'll see here, Jacob entrusts to Judah. No ruler or judge in all the history of Israel, as far as we can see in the Bible, ever came from the tribe of Reuben. The tribe will be relatively small and weak, though it should have been preeminent. As 1 Chronicles 5, 1-2 states, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright, yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. But wait, why does Joseph, or why, why does Judah rather, get the leadership position? Joseph gets the double portion. Judah gets this leadership position. We've already, by the way, seen that Jacob has had a tendency to entrust him to this. Judah takes the, the lead in many things. Judah's the one who went ahead to show the way to Goshen and things like that. But why Judah? There are still two brothers after Reuben who are older than Judah. Why wouldn't the next one? Why wouldn't Simeon come next? And if not him, why not Levi? Well, Jacob's prophecy about Simeon and Levi answers that question. He starts by saying, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Now, you might read that and think, yeah, so? Aren't they all? And of course, Simeon and Levi are full brothers, but there are other sons of Jacob and Leah, so there's Reuben, there's Judah, there's Zebulun, there's Issachar. So why say these two are brothers? Isn't that like stating the obvious? Well, actually, it's a way of also stating like-mindedness. Similarity of character in Hebrew. In addition to their blood relationship, they're alike in character. And that character has been violent. Genesis 34, 25, and 26 speaks of what they did to the men of the city of Shechem after having uh, pretended that they could make a marriage alliance with these people after they, after one of them, Shechem, the man named Shechem, had actually uh, defiled their sister, Dinah. They had convinced them, well, we can intermarry with you, but all of your men have to be circumcised in order to do that. And while the men were laid up from the circumcision, this is what Moses tells us happens. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Haman 
and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. Jacob describes that event poetically here in verses 5 and 6. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. Don't count me as somebody like them, Lord, please. Basically, he's saying, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Hamstringing an ox, right? A needless act of violence. It might have been just for them to call for the death penalty upon Shechem, who had defiled their sister, but not to kill all of the men of his city. And so Jacob here curses their anger. He pronounces judgment. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. You know, there's such a thing as righteous indignation, but cruelty is not acceptable. And so he says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So the two tribes descended from these sons being divided in Jacob and scattered in Israel is an apt description of what will come in the following centuries. In Numbers one twenty-three, the men of Simeon number 59,300 early in the Exodus period. But by the end of the wilderness plagues and afflictions, Numbers 26.14 says the tribe has 22,200 men. Less than half, 59,300 to 22,200. Just a little more than a third of what they used to be in terms of population. In Joshua 19.1 we learn that the land allotted to Simeon is totally surrounded by the land allotted to Judah. And so you've got the biggest tribe surrounding the smallest tribe, or one of the smallest. Prior to that, in Deuteronomy 33, when Moses blesses the tribes of Israel, he doesn't even mention Simeon. Because of its low population and its territory being surrounded by that of Judah, the largest tribe, Simeon will effectively cease to exist. It will lose its its, uh, own identity. It will be effectively absorbed into Judah, and lose its own identity as a, to a great extent anyway. Levi becomes the priestly tribe. Moses and Aaron are from the tribe of Levi. Aaron is the first high priest, and all the priests are descended from him. And the other Levites are the ones who serve in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. So they'll be claimed as a tribe by God to be the leaders of worship and the teachers of his law, And so the Levites, in order to be able to teach the law to all of the rest of Israel, they do not receive their own tribal land, but they live scattered throughout the lands of the other tribes. Now, by the grace of God, this curse will become a blessing for these two tribes. Simeon will be absorbed into the blessed tribe of Judah and share their blessings. Levi will be the tribe with the privilege of serving in the tabernacle and in the temple, of the Lord and to teach his word throughout Israel. They'll receive the tithes of the other tribes for the support of their labors in the word of God. But nevertheless, they are passed over as leading tribes. So that brings us to Judah, where our focus will be today. Jacob begins, Judah, you are he whom your brothers will praise. That's actually a play on words because the name Judah actually is a version of the word for praise. As we see, Judah will be praised as a powerful and prosperous people. 
But above all, because of Christ Jesus, Judah will be blessed. Jacob says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. So military supremacy. Your father's children shall bow down before you. So both victory over enemies and leadership of Israel is predicted for this tribe. Judah will be the largest and the most militarily powerful of all the tribes of Israel. So much so that uh, even before the time of the divide of the nation, there will be several times in scripture where uh, there will be references to what happens in Judah and in Israel, as if, as if Judah is its own entity. And certainly when David becomes king, he becomes king first over Judah for seven years, and then another 33 years over all of Israel. And of course, such victory over enemies and authority over Israel will be seen in the kingdom of David and Solomon, his son, who were from the tribe of Judah. Even when the kingdom was divided after that in the days of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, uh, Judah remained generally strong and far more stable than the northern kingdom of Israel. And after the fall of that northern kingdom to the Assyrians in 722 BC, Hezekiah, king of Judah, a descendant of David, and his heirs regained supremacy over the territory of the northern tribes to a great extent. Uh, Jacob states here, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. The imagery of a young lion, a lion's whelp there resting on his prey is really interesting. Matthew Henry points out that this is not a lion rampant, but a lion couchant or lion couchant. Uh, In heraldry, uh, in the study of symbols that represent families and nations, if you see a family's coat of arms or a nation's flag with a lion on it, if the lion is up on its hind legs, you know, with its front paws extended, maybe the claws are out, uh, that's called a lion rampant. But So a lion rampant is one that's it's fighting, it's attacking its prey. A lion in a pose of rest, lying down particularly, is called a lion couchant. Now Matthew Henry writes of this, he says, The lion is king of beasts, the terror of the forest when he roars. When he seizes his prey, none can resist him. When he goes up from the prey, none dare pursue him to revenge it. By this it is foretold that the tribe of Judah should become very formidable and should not only obtain a great victory, but should peaceably and quietly enjoy what was obtained by those victories, that they should make uh, war not for the sake of war, but for the sake of peace. Judah is compared not to a lion rampant, always tearing, always raging, always ranging, but a lion couchant enjoying the satisfaction of his power and success without creating vexation to others. This is to be truly great. Think of it as something like the modern doctrine of of peace through strength, right? The, The notion that you have the great ability to make war, not so that you can do it for fun or for the conquest of others, but so that you can be safe. the great power of the tribe of Judah, and particularly of Christ, as we'll see, is one that is for peace and not for violence. Violence only used in the defense of peace. Of course, this especially describes the perfect ruler. 
who would come from Judah. Revelation 5.5 actually calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that brings us then to verse 10. As it's translated here, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, in order to understand what's being said here, uh, there are some manuscript and translation issues uh, that we need to deal with. The first statement is, is quite clear. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah will hold the scepter of royal power. In the ancient world, the, the rod or the scepter was always a sign of royal power. It was in Egypt where Jacob is living and pronouncing this, where his son probably used those signs as a sign of the authority of the Pharaoh. So even when the kingdom of Israel is divided, Judah would maintain royal power. Even when Judah ceased to be an independent earthly kingdom, the royal line of David survived. And though it was not often recognized by men, it was often usurped by others, the right to rule God's people never departed from the house of David, of the tribe of Judah. The scepter did not depart from Judah. The second line is a little more difficult. Here's where the Hebrew gets hard. Uh, so it's translated here, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. And comparing ancient manuscripts and different ways of reading the Hebrew, we find that the line is maybe better rendered, nor a ruler's staff from between his feet. So we've got the scepter and the staff as parallel in this poetry here. Ruler's staff much better parallels that concept of a scepter or of a rod, especially when we note that the word for scepter here is the exact same word that David uses in Psalm 23, verse 4, for rod when he says to the Lord, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff of a shepherd, both signs of royal power in the ancient world. They were used even in Egypt, where Jacob is now living. They would have been signs of royal power likely used by uh, Joseph himself is a sign of the power and the authority of the Pharaoh, second to whom he was. And so uh, this rod and staff of the shepherd, the signs of royal power are going to be held by Judah, by this tribe, until Shiloh comes, he says. But what does that mean? What's Shiloh? Well, Shiloh can mean tranquility or rest in Hebrew. Uh, here it appears to be a name or a title for someone. So uh, it might be read as the rest giver, or the provider of rest. Another way of translating Shiloh is translated as tribute. So some translations will say until tribute comes. But a much, much better than that is uh, just that it could be rendered as until he comes to whom it belongs. In any sense of those terms... Shiloh is a fitting description of Jesus Christ. Christ is the rest giver. He's the one to whom the tribute of the nations will come. The one to whom the ruler's scepter and staff belong. In a similar way, David fulfilled this prophecy, but in a smaller way than Jesus. Psalm 89, 20-23 says, I have found my servant David with my holy oil, I have anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established, also my arm shall strengthen him, the enemy shall not outwit him, 
nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But then notice how the following verses are more fully fulfilled in the son of David, Jesus Christ. As we pick up at verse 24 of Psalm 89, But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. In Numbers 24:17, Balaam pronounces similar things about the coming of the Messiah from the tribe of Judah. A star shall come out of Jacob, or rather just from Israel. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Jacob says of the Messiah here, the rest giver, he to whom the ruler's scepter and staff belong, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Literally, that's plural, the peoples, the nations. Their obedience will be given to Christ. Think of Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. Or Daniel 7, 14. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Verses 11 and 12 describe both the prosperity of the tribe of Judah in history and more fully the delight of the kingdom of Christ. Binding his donkey to the vine and his Donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. If you bind your donkey to your vine, he's going to have a nibble. He's going to nibble at it. He's going to eat the grapes. He's going to eat the vine. You don't mind if your donkey's colt eats your choice grapevine. If that's the case, then you are pretty well off. It's like the description of the man who's got money to burn, literally. He lights his cigars with $100 bills, right? Uh, He'll be so prosperous you won't care if your donkey eats your choice grapevine. Similarly, fine wine is as inexpensive as washing water. You can wash your, your clothes in the blood of grapes. Eyes darker than wine and teeth whiter than milk, those were figures of speech indicating great health. The health and prosperity, not of your best life now, but of the coming kingdom of Christ. So our application today is simply this. Trust in Christ Jesus. He is the one who fulfills these predictions. He fulfills the promises of God. The theme of God's faithfulness which touches every page of Genesis, has its ultimate conclusion in Jesus Christ. We see that faithfulness in that we can look in the Old Testament, the later histories, and see that much of the things that that Jacob says here are indeed fulfilled. 
But we see, of course, that their greatest fulfillment, and especially in verse 10, are in Christ Jesus himself. Trust the faithful God who has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. O Lord our God, who has kept your word to Jacob, the word that you gave to all the prophets, so that we can trust you, build us up in faith, that trusting you all the more we may see the fullness of of Christ's kingdom, for we do pray in his name. Amen.